Lieutenant Curry, your devotion to the ship is unmatched. Mr. G, I realize your very nature precludes any ambition. Nevertheless, I want you to know that I seriously considered your appointment as first officer. For this season of re-engage, though, we need you all where you are. And that's why I have decided to appoint Commander Kate as first officer. Now sing us out, Commander. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Welcome to Reengage, where we watch every episode of the sci-fi series Star Trek The Next Generation and re-engage with the show from the perspective of adult storytellers instead of the late Gen X to early millennial children we were when it first aired. Today, we're talking about the premiere episode of season four, The Best of Both Worlds, part two. Uh -huh. And I am excited to welcome my fellow cultural bridge officers to discuss the resolution of the Borg attack as well as to speak to a very special guest. We'll introduce her in just a minute, but first, let's say hi to you, Commander Kate Yeager. How are you doing? I am honored and terrified with my new position. So be ready for a lot of changes that will make no sense to anyone. <laughs> Excellent. That's why we need you here as first officer. <laughs> Eric Curry, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, and I demand that when you go through the audio later, you leave in the fart sound that Jimmy's microphone made. Delightful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, certainly the highlight of my day so far so let's top it <laughs> it certainly threw me off hey jamie how are you doing i'm doing great i love being overlooked i look forward to being overlooked many more times on this podcast and in my <laughs> new position i promise to bring as many microphone farts as i can excellent and our special guest is dr aaron mcdonald i'm very excited for you to be here hi aaron how are you hello thanks for having me i'm thrilled to be here as well you are a star trek consultant, I guess is the word, right? For all of the science stuff that's going on with the current Star Trek series. Is that right? Yeah. So I have a PhD in astrophysics. That's what my technical background is. And I started working for Star Trek on season three of Star Trek Discovery when Michelle Paradise took over, wanted some science for the burn and a couple other episodes. And then they brought me on after that to be an in-house science advisor for all the shows. So I've worked on everything from season three of Discovery. And then I wasn't on season one of Lower Decks or Picard, but everything after that I've been working on. So very fun. Yeah. Dream job, whatever. <laughs> it's, yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> So you're turning the technobab into real techno words. Yeah, there's a lot of weird things you don't really think about that this job would have. It's not just making sure the science sort of makes sense. It's also staying true to over 55 years of canon and trechnobabble and how to keep the way we talk about dilithium <laughs> right and how we talk about all the fictional stuff, transporters, warp drives, all of that, making sure that's all consistent across the shows as well. That's awesome. So you were a huge fan of Star Trek before this job. What was your first memory of the franchise? Yeah. So like very first baby memory would be one of my friends in like elementary school, her family were hardcore Trek fans. And so I remember going over to her house and they had like standee of Spock. They had auction <laughs> prosthetics that were in shadow boxes. Like oh. they were hardcore. I knew nothing about that. My parents are not sci-fi fans. I fucked the mold with that one. I was super into the X-Files. I was super into the other star franchise. <laughs> that was a big thing for me. <laughs> and then when I went to college, I was majoring in physics and math. And this may come as a surprise to some people, but it turns out that 
a lot of physics majors are also Star Trek fans. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I started getting exposed to it. Literally like our parties, college parties with the beer pong and solo cups and all of that also included having Star Trek The Next Generation on in the background and uh, would eventually devolve into everyone just watching it and playing drinking games with the Picard (laughs) tug. And (laughs) that's where I really fell in love with it. And then especially when I went off to graduate school, that's where I caught up on the whole backlog and just fell deeply obsessed. And honestly, like, I don't think I could have finished my PhD if it wasn't for Voyager. Because anytime I wanted oh, wow. to quit, I was like, I can't let Captain Janeway down. <laughs> so, yeah, so it played a big role a little bit later in life, but is obviously a huge part of my life now. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. I love having a captain who is keeping you on your toes. Exactly. We all need that. <laughs> yep, exactly. I always feel a little starstruck when I meet someone who was able to meld their passionate calling in whatever they go forward with passionate fandom at the same time, especially later in life when they're pursuing that, when it seems like something they want to do. And it's, I'm just very excited to have you on the program. That's really Thank awesome. you. For me, I wandered around not knowing really what I wanted to do professionally. I just liked space. So I just studied <laughs> that for a long time, but always film and television has been such a huge part of my life. I just felt like I had already ruled that out as a possible path. And then just, yeah, being able to be like, oh, no, maybe my path is to use that to tell the stories that then inspire future scientists. That's where I finally discovered what my passion is and a space that I can work in. Amazing. I'm so glad you get to offer your expertise and thoughts on this episode, The Best of Both Worlds Part 2. As I said, it is the first episode of Season 4. It is Stardate 44001.4. But in our world, it first aired on September 24th, 1990. A big thing happened over these last three months when the Star Trek production team was on hiatus. Iraq invaded Kuwait on August 2nd, which started Operation Desert Shield, which then morphed into Desert Storm. We'll get to that over the course of this season, all the events that led up to that. But here in September, it's about two months after that occurred, and there is a huge diplomatic upheaval as well as a military buildup from a huge coalition over time in the Persian Gulf as well as in Saudi Arabia. So that is the thing that was most likely invading everyone's headlines and thoughts as that was occurring in 1990. But some lighter news was also happening on September 14th, about 10 days before this aired, Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. went back to back hitting home runs in the first inning of the Seattle Mariners game. A lot of us are based here in Seattle, so that that means a lot to all of us. That was such a cool thing happening when a father and a son hitting back to back home runs. I don't know if it'll ever happen again. We're all pondering it, but yes, that was amazing. It'll happen again. Maybe, who knows, knows? but the longevity of careers in baseball seems to have not been as much recently. Who knows? Maybe we'll have Aaron Judge and his son do it soon. September 18th, Atlanta was chosen to host the 1996 Summer Olympics. So I remember that being a big deal when we're like, oh, it's coming back to the U.S. We were very excited about it. Maybe once we get to 1996 and the timeline here of this, we'll talk about what happens at those Summer Olympics. (laughs) 
when our youth was shattered. Yes, so exactly. Cool. About three days after this aired, I'll be doing some of these events as we lead up to what's going on with the Iraq war. But I thought it was just interesting that the deposed emir of Kuwait addressed the UN General Assembly, talking about what had happened to his country and trying to get a coalition going. Also on that day, Didi Ramon was arrested on marijuana possession charges in Washington Square Park, which is the most cliche thing ever, really, that a punk rock was nabbed <laughs> in Washington Square Park. Long live Dee Dee Ramone. But that's a good transition Washington to go Square to Commander Park. Kate with all of the entertainment that was happening over the summer here in 1990. We re-enter into our top billboard with Release Me by Wilson Phillips. Mm. Baby, you just got to release me. Something like that. Uh, <laughs> I believed it. On the alternative music side, Suicide Blonde by NXS was number one, which I remember because my friend thought that it was Super Slide of All. You want to make her Super Slide of All. <laughs> that song has stuck in my head oh, for many reasons, that being one of them. The number one movie this week was Goodfellas. Nice. Yeah, just yeah. premiered, right? Yep, it was premiered and was number one at the box office. Unrelated to Goodfellows, the Motion Picture Association of America created the new NC-17 rating to replace the X rating. And the first movie to get that rating, anyone remember? Nine and a half weeks. Ooh, close, but not at all. Henry <laughs> and June. Henry Ooh, and yeah, June. Henry and June, that's yeah, right. Released in October of that year, but that was the first one to officially get the NC-17 My brain rating. immediately went to Benny and June, so I guess <laughs> that's a win. I got close enough. <laughs> what if I told you Fred Ward was in both? Would we be sure he wasn't? We I, would not be sure he wasn't. I don't know who that is. He's a sexy man. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, in the accolades, Marvin Gaye got a posthumous star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame that week. So that was what was happening in the pop culture world. That's awesome. Jimmy, what was happening in the production? I didn't realize this until I started looking into this episode, but I thought they filmed both of these at the same time, but they actually didn't. That three-month gap was there. Wow. In fact, Pillar didn't come back to finish up the script until July, and he didn't even come up with the idea for the interdependency of the Borg until two days before shooting started. Cute, because that's what the episode pivots on. In this episode, we get another trip to Data's cybernetics lab. If you remember, this is where Law was both born and died. And it's also, we learned when we hit that episode, that the cybernetics lab is the redressing of the TOS movie bridge. Reuse, recycle. In this episode, we learned that the shuttles have their own transporter capabilities. Before, it was always the ship that beamed them off but now they can beam themselves they brought out the six foot model of the enterprise for the saucer separating in this episode because it was actually built in two pieces the creative designers in season three came up with a four foot model that they thought looked better and filmed better. They couldn't use that though because of the saucer separating. And this episode, though it has movie quality visual effects, wasn't nominated for any Emmys for visual effects, but it did get some nominations for sound editing, sound mixing, and art direction. What I think is one of the coolest things though is when we get to Wolf 359, we didn't get to see the battle, but we see a lot of holes of ships and there are no less than eight brand new 
starship class ships introduced to the audience in this scene and they were all introduced by way of kit bashing meaning <laughs> the designers were given the leftover parts of kits and told to reassemble them in new ways and they came up with brand new starship classes and of those we have the cheyenne the challenger the springfield the freedom class niagara class New Orleans class, which Shelby actually mentions in the episode, as well as the Nebula class, which is also mentioned by Shelby. That was the Melbourne, which we are going to see in two upcoming episodes this season. And then the Rigel class starship. And that was the Tolstoy also mentioned in the episode. And here's something that Aaron can actually elaborate on for us. <laughs> the site of Wolf 359 is an actual star the third closest to our solar system, only 7.2 light years away. In Star Trek terms, that's about 36 hours journey at warp nine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what makes it so cool. Now, the warp thing is always funny because OS went like above warp 10 and what is warp and how fast is that technically? And so is it the Enterprise D that takes 36 hours to get there at warp nine? I would assume which, so. Yeah. Nemesic doesn't mention if it's that Which but usually they go with yeah they usually okay. they go with the flagship as the fastest <laughs> that's what i figured and because that ship is so massive the way i viewed warp is warp nine for a little baby ship like voyager would be different than a warp nine for the enterprise but all of that said i like that sort of scale it's always good to bear in mind that yeah when it's 7.2 light years that means without warp drive at the speed of light, it's going to take over seven years to get there. So space is big. Just remember space is very big. <laughs> I did love also that we got to see Mars for the first time in, I think the Star Trek franchise with the Mars Defense League. We'll get to that point too, but. And those were actually modeled after the submarine from the hunt from October. I saw that. Really? Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> and the crew called them like blue, blue, blue gray, the blue gray Octobers or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Eric, we went through the actors last time. I don't think there's anyone new here. Anything to add? No, I think we can really enjoy our commander and admiral friends and enjoy their performances once more. LaVar Burton was in the hospital during the filming of this with an emergency, oh, wow. which is why Miles O'Brien is in the cybernetics lab assisting. Mm -hmm. That was supposed to be the chief engineer. And that's why all the scenes of LaVar Burton are close-ups because he filmed them all like over mm -hmm. just one day when he was able to get out and do that and not with the rest of the cast. Yeah. But speaking of LaForge, that is how this episode opens. He says the main deflector dish is ready. At the end of Best of Both Worlds Part 1, we had just met Lacutus of Borg. We got that red laser going right into the camera and Riker says fire. I love that this cliffhanger follows on a lot of late 80s sequels and cliffhangers. My favorite being Karate Kid 1 and Part 2. <laughs> it goes right after the tournament. I was like, that never happens. What is the actual next thing that happens? And this does the exact same thing where it's almost continuous after the to be continued was shown. They fire, the beam shoots out, it hits the board cube and nothing happens. Uh-oh, no dice. What are we going to do now? What did you guys think of this cold open raising the stakes immediately? I started to think about the fact that about half of these episodes are about the Federation being the big, for want of a better word, bully of civilizations that don't have what they have. 
and how in some ways it's satisfying to see all the weaponry completely useless against an enemy that is the bigger bully and what are we going to do about it if we want to stay heroes it's super interesting i was all at once thrilled and disappointed and thrilled again because <laughs> there was this big buildup and i watched this last night so there was quite a bit of time between when I watched part one and part two. So I'm ready for the big explosion and for this big attack and it goes nowhere. I'm like, that was worthless. And then the reason why it didn't work was brilliant. It's like, oh, that actually is kind of awesome that it didn't work. So it was a nice little roller coaster there for me within a few minutes. Yeah. I mean, I, I love end of season cliffhangers that I feel is a bit of a lost art these days, mm. <laughs> which I know when they did uh, season was at the end of season two of Star Trek Lower Decks. They did a to be continued to just be like, hey, remember this, guys? Because <laughs> <laughs> this do it sucks. Because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's we roll right into the next ones, but it's yeah, it's really fun. And I like what you said too about just the fact that it's an immediate pickup, which makes it even weirder that they filmed them separately. Right. Yeah. Aaron, what is the science behind, and maybe you don't even know, but the deflector dish, what were exactly were they trying to do? I can never really figure out why this was going to be a more potent thing than the phaser. Oh, man. I'd have to remember the exact dialogue that they used for it. But wasn't it part of, because typically the deflector dish is used as defense mechanism, right? So it's basically all the little micro asteroids and things that come, mm. it, it'll keep them from hitting the ship. It it's almost like a super shield that they're able to employ and scale depending on how much they need it. So I'm trying to remember if they say they like reverse any of the energy beams or they reroute any of the stuff through to the deflector dish. But yeah, you can reverse the deflector beam to basically push out instead of protect the ship. You basically turn defensive to offense. I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to absolutely <laughs> lose my mind. This is amazing. <laughs> like, I never think at all about the deflector thing. It's just a big oval in the front of the ship because it looks cool. But like, it actually has a reason. Yeah, I'm losing my mind. I can't take <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have my technical manual handy from where I'm sitting right now. Something like yes. routing the dilithium through it. But yeah, that, that's the coolest explainer I've ever heard. Kate, what did you think of the ending of this where it's Locutus? He says, I know everything that Picard knows. You're never going to pull a fast one on me. Take that, number one. Oh, <sighs> chills. Chills. Legit. They do such a great job as you said, rolling into this next moment. And just prior to the firing, there's this great tense moment where we get to see everybody gulp. Like, it just really sets that scene. And then, like Jamie was talking about, all sound and fury signifying nothing, right? <laughs> this big old burst that does nothing, that then is just mic dropped with the knowledge of Picard as part of the Borg, number one. Like, your resistance is hopeless, I believe he says. It's just such a great cold open. I love it. Discharging this weapon makes the Enterprise a little less potent going forward, and they let the Admiral know, hey, we can't meet up at Wolf 359. Hope you guys got enough ships. And the Admiral says, you did a good job. You delayed them enough. We got 40 ships here. We're going to do great. I love how the Admiral is getting data pads handed to him i think twice throughout this little moment being like he's so important that he's getting little post-it notes handed to him <laughs> about what's occurring and then you have a little bit of a memorial for picard where admiral hansen talks about him running marathons and that he would never help the borg but then he's also dead now 
a little inconsistent there, but. Well, I, it, it's a great clap back to Shelby, who basically just flat out says Picard gave them this information. Yeah. And his his response to that is, let me tell you a story about someone I know, right? Like, it's a bit of a rambling story, but <laughs> the end of it, the main point is that you can't blame Picard. He would never have purposefully have done this. And it's rewriting history, right? Like she's saying factually what happened. He's no, this is how you are going to say what happened because this is how he will be remembered in the history right. books. It's oh. literally, like, we are not allowing that narrative to exist. At first I thought he was going to be talking about her. And then I was a little surprised when it went into Picard. I was like, oh, you're right. He's letting everybody know when you're asked about, this is what you say. Yeah. That's an important distinction. I didn't really think about that, but it is a little bit like, this is my friend. Don't be his name. Yeah. And then Admiral gives Riker a field commission. He is now the captain. Go about your business. And he says, congratulations. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Wish it could be under better circumstances. Read the room, dude. <laughs> <laughs> You've been trying not to be promoted for like four seasons now. You get it now, buddy. Which is what he always wanted. He was, this is a special ship. I, I don't want to be captain of some other junk heap. I want to be captain of the Enterprise. Oh, congratulations. Then we move to probably what is one of the most terrifying scenes in this episode with Locutus getting even more Borgified and that needle going towards his eye with one tiny tear running down the side. He's still there. He's still there. He's still <laughs> And he turns gray. That was, light, that was the light probe. That went into his ear and grayed him out. We don't have that skin tone here, man. We don't, <laughs> we don't do that in the Borg. Everybody's pale. Oh, uh, I did so read that the, the director used a, it was shot in black and white for trying to get that effect, making it feel as mm. otherworldly and alien as possible. So that not even the skin tone at all could be seen. And you can see that contrast later on because when they're dealing with Picard in the cybernetics lab, you can see his skin color underneath that white makeup. But the effect here makes it look really creepy. But it's like, it's a cool emotional thing that they're doing with us, right? Because they're trying to convince us like the Picard we knew is dead. The knowledge is now fed into this evil, scary zombie species. And then being like, oh, actually he's not. And now yeah. they're having to fight him. Yeah, it's scary, man. It holds up. Borg are creepy. <laughs> yeah, it really does hold up as this study. And what do you do when you have an implacable enemy against you? So then Worf and Riker discuss in the turbo lift. This is another little neat piece of direction I learned about. The turbo lift doesn't move, but they make it seem as if it has changed levels over the course of this scene through like subtle lighting effects. And they talk about how they're going to have the phasers. This was Wesley Crusher had this really bright idea to have automatically changing phasers so that the board can't adapt fast enough. So neat to see this now after having seen this when you're 16, 17, and this sounds so futuristic, and now you could go get a free app that does this just anytime you want. It's living in Jetson's land as much as anything else, and it's always delightful when it's this obvious. You mean the changing the of iPad, phaser frequencies? Yeah, you can have any number of things. The software just changes it to something else every time you use it. Like, it's just basic now. That's a good point. Like, changing your password automatically each time. It's basically doing that. This is something that is done in military technology is frequency hopping. So people aren't being able to get into comms. Literally what Wesley Crusher is doing. <laughs> it's 
just instead of firing a phaser, it's trying to use walkie-talkies that jump around a different level so people can't find them. So yeah. what you're saying is Wesley's not that smart. But I'm here. <laughs> that it's really just following standard protocol. SOP. Hold on. <laughs> he was the first to come up with it. And we'll get to more of this discussion when we get to what was happening in Iraq during this war. But I think there were concepts and themes in the way information age warfare was taking place that was about this, about the, those comm jumping and trying to figure out how to knock out the Iraqi commanders. I remember that was like a big deal in our tactics there. Again, we'll get to that. But I love that Worf has a great line here. The Borg have neither honor nor courage, and that is our greatest advantage. Is it? <laughs> is it though? <laughs> I did think about that a line a lot, though, as we were watching this. I think it actually is. Making the joke here now, but that is what sets apart Riker and makes him realize that they have to do something bold and daring that goes outside their normal protocols, like building a transporter in the shuttle craft, perhaps. <laughs> they can't get the shields working again. Shelby is working there and they enlist Worf right away and he starts working on it, trying to get everything ready. They only have a few hours to try to rendezvous with them at Wolf 359 or hopefully soon after. And then Shelby and Riker have a conversation about who's going to be the first officer. I don't think I really thought about this until this scene. And she's the one who puts her case forward really well, I thought, to be like, look, you need me. I get shit done. Give me a consideration here. Kate, what did you think of Shelby here? She's got brass ovaries. I love her, right? <laughs> she's just absolutely, he says, I need someone to keep me on my toes. And she goes, immediately. That sounds like the job of a first officer. It even takes him back, right? Like he laughs at it. Uh, not risively, but again, <laughs> the brass ovaries like on her that she would bring that up. And it works, right? As much as Shelby was shown in the first episode to be the antagonistic in this episode Riker much more sees her as himself right like yeah. he recognizes himself in her a lot more in this episode than I think the previous episode. Um, yeah and I always have a lot of respect for someone who goes to the gatekeepers and says look I'm getting past the gate you can be the one who helps me or I can be here telling you every day that I'm going to get past the gate because I'm going to get past the gate and when it's someone who does it with competence and forthrightness, like I can't help but just sit there and hope for her. I would be looking across somewhere else and hear her voice. I'm like, when did Tasha Yar get back? <laughs> it's a very distinct personality that was missing on the bridge and it's neat to have it there. I think what's so interesting is we can think about what makes a good first officer and it's different for each captain, right? And I think what Picard needed was not really someone to challenge him all the time. Like he was the type to just say, yeah, I'm making this decision. I'm confident in it. Riker, just take care of all the admin stuff. <laughs> just go talk to <laughs> other people. Take care of all the other things so I can captain. And he's great at that. And there's a good relationship. But then you got other people who was like Kirk and Spock or even Cisco and Kira who where they push back. And they're just like, they challenge the captain. And they're like, are you sure? Kirk really want to make that decision <laughs> I don't think that's a good one and so just seeing how like Shelby offered to Riker I'm not going to be you I'm going to offer support in this way and I'm going to challenge you in this way I think is really cool to examine Picard was like Riker I need you to know all the single moms take care of all the kids <laughs> that's what you're good at you stick in that <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Then we get this bit. I love this communique from the Admiral at Wolf 359. It's the last we see of him because the fight does not go well, Enterprise. We're going to rendezvous at...
Oof, car horn, head on horn. Yeah. 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 It is a great act ending there. Riker then promotes Shelby, perhaps based on that conversation, as well as uh, their experience over the previous episode to be his first officer. He does give a nice little nod to both Worf and Data standing there awkwardly, all getting their, I guess, compliments, but also looked over this. Oh, I might have misread the scene. I thought he went to Shelby to tell her you're going to be the first officer. I was never in the impression that he was thinking about it. It it seemed pretty evident to me that he was going there to do it and she jumped the gun and it got sidetracked a little bit, but it seemed a foregone conclusion. That's where he was going. So it was a little surprising to me when they were in the ready room and he's explaining why he's passed over the other two. But now in retrospect, it's cool because Picard, I don't think would have done that. I mean, like I made my decision and that's the right decision. I don't need to tell you why. It was like, oh yeah, this is a new regime or a new administration. Like, He's going to explain to everybody why he's doing everything he's going to do and try to get everyone on the same page. But I didn't think there was a question about who would be there, especially when he walks past everybody and ends up right by her chair. <laughs> it sure. gave it away that who won first place. <laughs> She's got a little smile on her face, too, when he walks over to her. I think she knows what's going to happen. But I think, uh, honestly, in that situation, you would probably not pick the newcomer to be the XO, you would pick Data or Worf or, or someone who has experience with the rest of the crew. I think just the circumstances of where this is right. important for him to lay out. Like, look, we need everybody where they're the best suited. This is not the time for training. This is the time for coming in and being at your best game. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Plus she has been essentially been acting as first officer as soon as Picard was taken anyway. That certainly fits. Then they go through talking about what they could possibly do. They mentioned Gravitron, Graviton beams, which are different than Gravitron beams. Nanites, which I noticed Michael Pillar wrote the episode involving nanites before, so he's giving a nod to his own work. Michael uh, Pillar loves his nanites. <laughs> <laughs> Two to three weeks, not enough time. I like Troy's line there, like, that might be the only thing that's left of the Federation is those nanites if we go with that plan. And then uh, Riker just says, I'm not Picard. He would have a really great speech, probably Shakespearean in nature, if he were here now and he wishes that he, Riker, could uh, could replicate that. And I thought that was a really nice, honest moment from him. Yeah, he's more of a Sam Shepard, really. That's actually pretty true. <laughs> I, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. But then I love the next scene. He's in the ready room and he's like, how do I sit here? This is, he's, he, it's his rocks behind the chair. I can't. <laughs> be next to those rocks and i love that guinan comes in and just shatters that trepidation that Riker has by physically sitting in picard's chair what did you all think of that choice i thought it was brilliant uh, the overall scene was fantastic i thought it was a silly opening with him gonna have a, a verbal conversation with the chair that was a bit like, inner actor <laughs> thing oh, like clint eastwood talking yeah to we chair. understand yeah. We understand that he's going through a lot. You do not have to have the actor speak out loud to an empty chair. We get it. But guiding coming in to pick up where she left off of a card, but the tantalizing information she leaves is what makes the scene, I think, the best. Like when she explains her relationship with Picard, like that's the gold stuff. What do you mean you're more than friends and family? Because of what we know what happens in Picard season two, it's like, did they really brilliantly set up this open-ended thing where... Now we can tie it in, but then he disregards everything she tells him. <laughs> she does exactly the opposite of what she says. He doesn't let go of Picard. Oh, I disagree. I think I think what she is saying here is that you can't emulate Picard. You can't be him. You have to be you. 
I was harkening it back to the episode earlier on where Riker is commanding another ship in like the uh, the War Games episode where he has to do all these tricks because he's completely outmatched against the Enterprise. And I think that this is where Guinan plants that seed, where it's like you have to do something that is you, Riker, not yeah. Picard. I agree with that part of it, yeah. It's demystifying Picard, right? That it's like Riker just sees him as on this pedestal. I can never step into these shoes. And she's like, you don't have to step into his shoes. You're in charge now. Just do what you're going to do. It's fine. That's it. Yeah, I think he takes it to heart. And also goes after Picard (laughs) to try to say that. But before that, we enter the system Wolf 359 and we get... A little bit of information through dialogue data says that there's no life signs. And I love that Wesley has this look at him being like, shit, there's nobody alive. And I think that almost makes us feel that next sequence really a lot because you see all those husks of broken ships floating. I got to say, anytime that there are ship names in alternate uh, present or history or future of our timeline it's one of my favorite tropes mm. it's because they're begging you to pay attention to what their society has named these ships and whether they meant all of the different things that it could possibly mean now 30 years later it's hard to know but it's neat to see tolstoy next to melbourne next to niagara uh, the challenger i'm for it when they're goofy and when they're naming famous people in saul rubinick's collector shit and they name a couple Mm. of real ones and a couple of fake ones like i'm for it whatever they do but this was a particularly nice example of it super cool yeah the kyushu was one of the islands of japan that's why it was named that wasn't the melbourne the ship that Riker was supposed to take over that was the one that he was offered the captainship to which sort of brings this oh shit that could have been him that maybe this is the reason that he stayed on this ship in the first place so you're saying he's prescient i'm saying (laughs) yes (laughs) no i'm just saying that was a nice little that was a nice little easter egg or a nice little yeah yeah. what could have been and they don't mention in this episode but in a few more episodes they actually unload how many people died and it's like eleven thousand souls are lost in that which is staggering and they also later on they don't mention it here but that several of those souls were borgified as well they were not just killed they were captured and turned into borg to mention the whole emotional arc of cisco later right. to really yeah, drive that right. home yeah this one episode has ramifications basically for the entire franchise going forward yeah. <laughs> mostly because of the small details that we're mentioning like the ships and i think bashir is on earth when this is happening almost every character in subsequent things has relationships to this thing. similar almost presciently to 9-11 or some other larger events that happen in our history and where we're like where were you where that happened where were you when wolf 359 happened they are able to track where the borg went data is able to see a breadcrumb trail of particles and uh, they realize that they're heading still to earth and this is where Riker, he must have been cooking up a plan already because he starts enacting it right away we're going to separate. Shelby, you're going to take the saucer section, Worf and Data. We've got a special mission. For a second, I thought, are they going to bring the Klingons in? Because anytime they have Worf on a special mission, that's usually what's, what it is. <laughs> I really love the fact they have committed 
to DC naming traditions with Clark Kent and the saucer section and the battle bridge. But every time they say the, the battle bridge phrase, I just get so happy. I can't <laughs> help it. It's just, I become 14 again. And it's a little battle bridge. It's, I'm very excited. <laughs> well, actually, they go to the battle bridge when there's going to be a big battle. <laughs> I say to myself, it's very fun. So if you want to get on Eric's good side, you got name ships and you got a whisper battle bridge in his ear. It's very true. Battle bridge. So on the battle bridge, Riker, Wesley, and Gleason is the Gleason. character that you mentioned. He's at Ops. They hail Lacutus. And I actually love the visual of what the Borg view screen looks like. It's this revolving cube so that everybody, I guess, every Borg can see what's happening, even though he's the nominal captain of what's going on here on the Borg cube. And Lacutus says, you may speak. And then it's... Even though, like you just says, oh, you're just stalling for time, it still works somehow. I love the whole idea of if Picard trusts me and you know everything that Picard knows, then you have to trust me. Like, it's <laughs> a interesting logic puzzle of if I leave it, 5 a.m. and you leave at 10 p.m. and we're each <laughs> going different directions. I don't know. I just, there's a little bit of what you know of me and what I know of you, cat and mouse going on. Yeah. Even though if he does, if Picard is inside Locutus, he would also know that Riker's got some crazy tactical ideas up his sleeve. <laughs> I don't know if the logic really follows that way. It was enough to, again, to keep him talking and Gleason is able to nail down exactly where on the board cutie was. That's, they're kind of like tracing the call. It's like that, yeah. oh my gosh, the call's coming from inside the ship. Nice <laughs> reference. So they ignore the saucer section as you should, Captain. But then that's where they release an antimatter spread not really sure what's happening here, but I realize it's mostly just a smoke screen. Yeah. Do you want me to talk about antimatter? Yeah. That, yeah. That was the prompt. Yes. Yeah, no, go for it. <laughs> I felt the prompt, but I didn't want to interrupt. Yeah. So yeah, what's cool about antimatter is that that's actually a thing as opposed to tachyons are like theoretic. They're not just Star Trek. They're theoretical things. Same with gravitons. But antimatter is a thing. Positrons are the antimatter of electrons. The reason we don't see them or interact with them that much is because when they meet their counterpart they annihilate each other so they create antimatter in these huge particle accelerators but it's short-lived because as soon as it meets its counterpart it just turns into like pure energy which is awesome just objectively awesome and that's actually how they power the warp cores with uh, anti-deuterium so they have deuterium and anti-deuterium and when they meet in the warp core it turns into energy and then that's the energy that they use to power the warp field. So I love the idea of antimatter as a smokescreen, right? Because it's like, you're going to spray out a ton of antimatter. And then literally, it's just gonna be like bursts. It's not going to be like a literal smokescreen, scientifically what we would see, but it would screw up your sensors like nobody's business, because it's going to be interacting with anything it runs into, and just creating little bursts of energy. It's like static hitting your camera. That's how I view that, but I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, antimatter's I, awesome. <laughs> I had never seen it used this way, and it's only until you see the departure of warp and data in the ship that you realize. And this is such a great visual too. I think it's the first time I've seen this in Star Trek before, where the launching of the shuttle outside the windows, 
you can see the position of the battle bridge, the lower section of the Enterprise to their left. And I was like, that was such a great positioning thing you don't normally get with Star Trek Next Generation. You might have get it with the movies when they have a bigger budget. But in this, it just was like, oh, I know exactly where they are and what they're doing. It worked really well. They realized that the ion emissions from the shuttle might be being detected by the Borg. So they go in cold. I love that idea, too, that they're just drifting forward under their own auspices. This is where we learned that they do have the transporter beam. They go through the magnetic field. And this is where I figured out what they were doing. I love that they don't have that scene where they explain the plan. They just see the plan get executed. I love that trope and seeing it come through. What did you guys think of the personal transporter beam onto the ship there? Yeah, I think it's cool. We get these episodes that are just like these flagship episodes for new technologies that we see in Star Trek, where it's like they put the effort in to try to figure out what new things could we do with it. And this is one of those episodes where you're like, oh, you can't do that with a shuttle. And you can have like personal. That's awesome. I feel like we've seen a couple of the people who have invaded the Enterprise come in with what seems like a similar thing. Mm. And it implies that they're learning from their mm. encounters in ways that we don't see on camera until they use it themselves. And that's me. Like, I'm a fan too. Yeah. Just had a visual of Jordy and Data in their little lab together, <laughs> picking apart this oh, thing. Right, like, I right. think we can do this. <laughs> Reverse engineering. Yeah. How can we use the power of the Jay Leno species? <laughs> give ourselves. <laughs> and I wish you would tie that in because in disco, they all have that and like some subtle background nod of if it weren't for 359, we wouldn't be able to do this either. By the way, Barkley's name is dropped during this episode. I forget what scene it is in, but it's just like oh, fun. offhanded. They say Barkley. And so he's there in the world. Bless his yep. heart. Uh, no, did. yeah, he's helping the repairs and engineering, I think, with Shelby. Yes, so my only, my only criticism of that scene with the shuttle, though, is that Data has to say the line to tell us, the audience, what's going on is these shuttles, maybe it has enough power now to transport us. You're like, oh, okay. You wouldn't actually say that if you were enacting your plan. That would have been part of it. But but it was brand new, right? We had never seen it. Yeah. So your interpretation, Aaron, makes a lot more sense. Maybe it was Jordy and Data had just figured this out and he's like excited to tell Riker, no, this should work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly all right so they get in and out basically they get locutus it's a nice little action scene wesley's idea with the changing phasers works a whole bunch and then we get that big swing from picard with his robot arm eric did you like this fight here it reminded me of an old stand-up routine that Jim Carrey used to do where he would say that people who are just learning karate are the people you need to stay away from or you'll help them hurt themselves. And that's a little bit Lucutus's fighting style. But it's fun. As I as you get to the end of the episode and you get, there is some Picard in there and we remember the tear and all that other stuff, it's fun to consider in here Picard would be fighting against fighting these two as well. So it's as deep as you want to make it in this episode. And it's a lot of fun. That's why the stunt work is not so great because he just swings I mean, the one thing to... there and then he, they're just basically. Yeah, if you want to be a very kind audience member, that avenue is open to you. Yeah, <laughs> Picard didn't want to hurt Get them in, inside. I Yeah, his little claw arm wasn't There's enough. money on all the tech stuff. They didn't have any for a stunt coordinator this week. <laughs> well, I actually read that there was a stand-in. There was a stunt stand-in that had all full makeup in Borg. You did four hours of Borg makeup, but they ran out of time in shooting. And they didn't actually end up doing the elaborate stunt that they had planned. 
And he's like, yeah, I got to be Borgified, but I never even was on camera. This is terrible. Every time I see that, I think of the Futurama episode where Fry thinks that he's a robot and he tries to attack him. He's like, he's filling his arms. That's just what I see now every single time. It's laughable if you think about it that way. But the Borg go down fast. Like the phaser is working. I was a little bit like, huh, they don't seem like such a terrible enemy when you're able to defeat them so quick. But it does feel heroic when they get him back and you get that great smile from Riker of, eh. I figured it out. <laughs> He's Popeye now. <laughs> Grinning like we know Riker does when he goes to visit. So, so I think the next moment is probably Jimmy's favorite moment of the episode where Wesley talks about the saucer section is a sitting duck. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. You know what though, Kate? Spread. I found myself less annoyed with Wesley because he has the uniform on there's something like okay now you're actually a starfleet person and not just some brilliant kid who has the only ideas it's like there was something about the uniform it's like now you're supposed to have ideas even though they're just standard operating procedure and not brilliant and he, he still wasn't the one cadet in starfleet <laughs> so it's still just an honorary uniform you go. you're right it's literally honorary i was watching this part with my daughter and she was like oh he's all grown up now so oh, she did see the transition got that image of like replicator uniform boys size medium <laughs> i'm not as small anymore that's amazing <laughs> so they have to repair the saucer section the impulse drive it was damaged by the antimatter spread and the borg is like all right well, you got one dude we don't care we're going to earth they leave the Enterprise, and then we start working on Locutus in sickbay. This is such an interesting dynamic because, of course, it's Crusher who is the first to speak to Locutus, and we see his eyes flutter open, and that Beverly, Crusher, Doctor, and you're like, oh, they smashed once. And then Locutus says it's a crappy strategy, Riker. He would never have approved, which is, I think, why it worked. It's a great scene for the Beverly Picard fans. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is where, even though Riker went after Picard, he did so in a way that was unusual, right? Like he is thinking outside of the normal operating procedure. And here we get that, this is where we get the, oh no, it was all of this for nothing. I think there's that moment of Beverly Crusher, Doctor, where you think, oh, he still talks like a robot, but he still, he knows her, right? But then very quickly our hopes are dashed as to he's still tethered to the community, as it were. Yeah, I do like his repetition of the, we mean you no harm. And he looks right at the camera and says, no harm. I really noticed that the Borg, I think, are the only ones who look at the camera. Almost every other eye line does not. And I just love that as a detail because it adds to its creepiness. But do you think that is Picard saying no harm? Is that Picard saying, don't hurt my friends? No. I, I think, think so? when they repeat it later, I think that's when you get to see inside Picard because they repeat it later when he's trying to move and they put the camera right there again and you see that. Mm. I feel like those are the moments where you get inside Lacutus and see the visual metaphor of being mm. inside Picard's struggle. It's an interesting thing. They go to that wide angle lens and they put it 
three inches from his face a few times and it gets the entire body. <laughs> it's super neat. Data does figure out how to potentially connect to the Borg collective. We get that scene with Crusher and Riker over Data's shoulder trying to figure out what does this mean that they're understanding now that the subspace signals that they're detecting is the collective. It is that you're part of this larger thing and they don't want to stop it because they know when that has happened, the person is destroyed or it doesn't want to be a part of the collective anymore it just gets disappeared and they don't want that to happen so they're trying to figure out maybe we can use data's special positonic brain to connect and jack into the matrix and we get a quintessential data moment which is the repeated processing and pause oh like, i love that, that when we get to just that just the coolest because it's such oh, a delaying okay, thing all this too. missing is a fascinating in there somewhere and i'm just <laughs> oh <laughs> But before we get to that, there's Lacutus in sickbay. This scene with Worf, what did you think, Jimmy? It was okay watching it, but when I was reading Den of Geek, he brought up a brilliant bit. He thought this is the funniest part of the show. Star Trek world is missing a trope of the condescending Borg who goes around the ship just telling everybody why they're futile and useless. <laughs> <laughs> a narrow view. So I uh, loved it for that it's, reason. It's like getting your performance review by a Borg. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yes. Right, somebody write that. They truly take over the galaxy. <laughs> Maybe that's what all the HR people are. They've been Borgs all right. Along. They need everything in triplicate. <laughs> that's a Borg <laughs> philosophy. A narrow view. You will be assimilated. <laughs> he has that scene with Roar, but then he like just turns to three people who have been watching him give this dressing down and is like, you all will be a part of my future. <laughs> <laughs> and then they bring him to the cybernetics lab to hopefully help out what's going on and enact the plan that Crusher and Data are gonna do. They're moving towards sector 001. We see that great shot of the Borg cube going past Saturn. We're like, the threat is real. It's in our solar system where we have those visual cues. So fun. They're 42 minutes away from the Borg, but the Borg are only 27 minutes away from Earth. What are they gonna do? I don't know a lot about math, but that feels <laughs> like that's problematic. Yes. See, Aaron says so, so therefore. <laughs> <laughs> well, problematic in the sense of like physics wise, they are going very close to the speed of light. <laughs> they are 27 minutes away near Saturn. That's about the speed of light. So that's pretty impressive. But yeah, they're hauling. Does that cause problems with like other objects in the solar system? <laughs> That's why we have deflector dishes. That's <laughs> ah, why we have to, I didn't realize that until now. Yeah, yeah. If you want to go, but remember too, space is three-dimensional and our solar system mostly exists on a plane. So you can just zip over the asteroid belt if you need to. <laughs> Yeah, I'm 46 and I think I never really caught to that. <laughs> yeah. Never grokked That's that okay. pretty much all this stuff you could just go around because space is big. <laughs> space is big and three dimensional. Just like everything. Yeah. yeah. But part of that's by design in the sci-fi storytelling, right? That when we have space battles and stuff like that, you don't want to take advantage of that three dimensional ability because it pulls the viewer out once you see a ship do something that's counterintuitive to what we've seen on air combat 
and it does something weird, you're like, whoa, what the hell? And there's a couple shows that have taken advantage of that. Battlestar Galactica and The Expanse, but they came out of the gate swinging with those. Like in the right. pilot, they're doing weird space maneuvers. So it pulled you out then, but then you're in it for the rest of the series. With something like Star Trek, they very much stick with no, we're going to act like airplanes because otherwise it'll break your brain. <laughs> yeah, like Aaron, when they watching The Expanse, the first time I saw like the engines are, seem like they're in the front. Like, why are you going forward when it looks like your engine blast is in the front of the ship? I'm like, I don't know, but it looks cool. It does look cool. Yeah, that's a whole other episode. Right. And then on the ships, they're like in The Expanse where they there's people walking regular and then there's people on the ceiling walking and like it shows you, oh yeah, there's- so cool. Because they're spinning. No right? gravity. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, we don't have to do that because we got the artificial gravity in Star Trek yeah. that just happens. It's, yeah. it's, it's we have gravity nice. generators. How do yeah. they work? They work really well. What yeah. doesn't work really well is the Mars defense perimeter. I really like this kind of the way this last act is structured where data is like, I've never done this before. We're going to figure out it's all going to get set up. And we've got three phases. We're going to do one, two, three. And it's a great way to intercut between what's happening out in the solar system to what they're trying to attempt doing here. The first two neural links don't do much other than O'Brien being there. Again, he's the placeholder for Jordy here, but he's saying the readings are all okay. I also really like that Troy is here and she can add information that really only an empath can provide. It's mm -hmm. one of the moments I think even the writer, Michael Pillar said that he wanted to make sure that all the members of the crew were able to contribute something to this resolution. But then the third link happens and that's where the prosotronic LED lights on Brent Spiner's head start going faster, which means something is happening. Obviously. Processing. This is where he's doing the processing, processing. Nice. I love that he's still trying to figure out what to do. And Rikers, we don't have any time. Your final report. I love that he's kind of like, no, Tell me that what is happening, because otherwise we're going to go warp speed into Kamikaze. the board. <laughs> yeah. Wesley Crusher's like, oh, sh okay. I don't know if I'm ready to commit. <laughs> I don't want to die. <laughs> but he's like, all right, I'll do it. We're sitting ducks. Yeah, well, Holdo, before Admiral Holdo here, this would have messed up the Borg ship, that's for sure. Data is understanding that he can give commands, but all the commands that are more military in nature are blocked. And then Picard reaches out, grabs Data's hand. That moment is so strong because he had been so passive and leading up to this. What did y'all think when Picard reached out and grabbed Data's hand? It's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. It was great. And that was the first moment where I get on Eric's page of how much Picard was there because he must have been listening as Picard or hearing as Picard what was saying because there's a line of data throws out there. I can't get through to these high security channels. And it's then him, Picard, saying this is a channel you can get through to laying like the direct clue. And it's brilliant because it's one word, which is like, he's trying to fight through and he can't have a conversation. So this one little word that unlocks everything for him. It was super well acted and just a nice, really good bit of writing there. Like how simplicity, economy of words, like one word that unlocks everything. So that was really cool. Variation of the person who's been murdered and only has 10 seconds to write a clue for the detective. To yeah, exactly. It's yeah, I love it. I don't like that they make <laughs> Beverly stupid for a hot second where she's like, he's so sleepy. It's so clear know. what's happening. He just needs to... a nap. Why are you <laughs> fading into this? But she saves the universe. 
Mm. So it was like the teeter totter. Right. Because she's the one who kind of prompted Data to be like, this is their Achilles heel. We think of their collectiveness as their main strength, but it could also be their main weakness. And that's my. I was thinking about, I was saying earlier how it, it hits different in my mid 40s than it did in my teens. And nothing hits different than the thinking of sleep as a low priority system. Wouldn't have been weird for me at 15, but right now I'm like, how's sleep going to be a low priority system to these unhealthy bastards? <laughs> Most important system I have. Napping is good, you guys. Just I'll never that understand there. these. But the action that's happening on the bridge is a great juxtaposition because we get the cutting beam that we saw in q who cutting into the hull the decompression is going to happen we've had lots of hull breakage before but now they're like no this could just decompress the entire ship that's not good and <laughs> then everything stops data was successful in putting in the sleep regeneration command and i love riker's incredulity at what huh you put him well, to sleep? The moment right before that when they it worked i love that scene where he's just like, hold and riker's like hold hold everyone stop <laughs> yeah stop what you're doing i don't know what it is but data told me to pause <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, yeah i mean i think that's just the cool action of they were so close to it yeah riker was about to say engage like he's in the middle of saying the word engage when he's like oh, 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 oh. I love that. You're totally right. Then he orders Shelby over there with an away team. There's no electromagnetic field that doesn't block right. the transporters anymore. Can you check and make sure what's happening? And she's got a smile. We'll do. Can't be anything dangerous now, Captain. Let's go, Worf. It's still dangerous. But they are. They're all just sitting there, plugged in their Teslas to their bodies to recharge. Ignoring away. This is a little bit of a writerly thing i don't necessarily see how putting them to sleep would then trigger the auto destruct right but we later learn this is my little supposition we learn that the board queen in first contact was actually on this cube during this attack and that she survived so my little headcanon is that she initiated the self-destruct and then went through time Guys, i've been convinced what do you think aaron i like that i haven't thought about that before I need to think about it more. She blew it I'll up. email you at three in the morning when I <laughs> thought about this. Because that's really cool. That's yeah, really cool. I do that too. We would probably have seen the Borg Queen. Yeah, that's so retrospective. Oh, she was actually there and just decided to give Locutus the stage and not upstage him because he was new and she didn't want him to feel <laughs> very unborgy <laughs> that the Queen wouldn't pop up if she was actually there maybe she, that's or, what she learned from this she grew and was yeah. like oh i have to be much more of a hand yeah her strategy before was to be like right yeah, I'm it's gonna... because of that she became yeah. really snarky i mean <laughs> in picard season two snarky, she right? needs to yeah. be as snarky as can be we do get this great explosion of the board cube blowing up Riker is like do we want to hold on and disable this we're like no let's let it blow up crusher's like i don't know what's going to happen to picard and Riker's basically let's fuck around and find out there's <laughs> no real thought of right. like, i realize time is of the essence but they're just like i don't know i think it'll be they should have had shelby in the background and he could have said who can't make hard choices now yeah. <laughs> Boom, shakalaka. So this explosion is really big. In my mind, it rivaled the blowing up of the Death Star. Like it just had that kind of finality to it. I read also that the production designers were like, oh, it has to be big. We only have one board cube. We're not gonna blow that up. So they basically built the pyrotechnics thing where they spent all their money on and then they didn't have any more money. So they ended up 
just like last second taking models, all of the stuff they had done with kit bashing and all of the pieces that the model parts were popped out of, they just glued it to the side of this thing so that it had parts that would fly off when they exploded it. Awesome. Practical effects. And that's it. The Borg are destroyed. The threat appears to be over and we get Picard returning back to normal, although he does have a very revealing Borg costume now. I'm for it for just for the record. <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> for what it's worth. And they gave him that three month break so that he could get in shape, girl. Right? And <laughs> who was the first crew member to ask for a selfie between leaving engineering and getting all that shit taken off of him in sick bay? Someone's like Captain, come on. And pulls right up. Right. The Borg Keeney. He has the board key. Yeah, a little banana hammock there. <laughs> I love the idea of Michael Pillar calling up Patrick Stewart and be like, all right, I haven't written. I don't really know exactly, but just look, just hit the gym. Like <laughs> there's gonna there's gonna be some shots I'm playing. <laughs> My friend in high school, when he was playing Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar, he had this realization. He's like, oh, wait, oh, shit. I'm going to be in the front of the school with my shirt off. He was like, oh, no. <laughs> He's like, oh. no, I'm a flabby. He was like, I don't want to be flabby. You can't Jesus. have a pudgy Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have a pudgy Picard, Borg. <laughs> uh, but he's got a great line. Kudos to Michael Pillar for writing. How do you feel? Almost human. That's, yeah. yeah, you're right. That's about how you would. And a bit of a headache as well. He's hungover. Yeah, that next line is huge just in terms of canon. How much do you remember everything? Mm -hmm. That's fucking huge. Yeah, and yeah, like me. sets up so much for the future and just also just is a great piece of storytelling yeah. that that goes towards that very final moment of this episode, which we will get to yeah. in a moment. But right. just yeah. I just think that's such a that's just such a clutch line. It's yeah, a that, strong choice for this yeah. because that, like you said, it sets it up as opposed to every other traumatic event that has happened on the Enterprise D until now that they managed to forget by the next episode. Yeah. That is a choice to just be like, no, he's going to remember all of this. And this is where he even is enough of himself. I think this is what sells Picard being back more than anything else is that he gives kudos to Riker. He's like, I remember... I remember everything, especially your little weird maneuvers that somehow worked. That's amazing. Brilliant, unorthodox strategy from a former first officer of mine. So they start to refit and reprogram. We got a little bit of a denouement here as they, he says that they can get the fleet back up to speed in a year. It's maybe a little bit of an ambitious goal, but they're moving forward to rebuild. They don't want to take this as being something that would set them back decades and decades. There's that really great moment where the doorbell rings and both Picard and Riker say, come. And then yeah. again, they share that look of, okay, yeah. This is a moment that we are gonna have to unpack. Shelby leaves. Hopefully she's get to work with Riker again in the future. Riker leaves and then we get Picard's really, this is Patrick Stewart's best acting moment, I think in this episode where he's about to take a sip of Earl Grey tea. We assume it's hot. Then he doesn't take that sip and he puts it back down and we see the bandages on his head that match to where the cybernetic implants were. And it's just a very quiet scene. This could have been full of dialogue. He could have talked to himself like Riker does to the chair earlier, but he doesn't. He just has that really quiet moment and then looks out the window and that's how it ends is 
that scene. It's just, it's really beautiful. And he just looks so lost and sad, but also contemplative and it's left for a lot of interpretation. But I think knowing what we know now with Picard too, and being cut off from the collective, how painful that can be. It was hard not to look at it with that lens. For sure. And then a great, we get, I can't wait to talk about the next episode because it's one of the few times where Star Trek Next Generation does continue through this storyline. It's really beautiful. All right, that is The Best of Both Worlds Part 2. We're going to go around for final thoughts here. Kate, I'm going to throw it to you first. What are your thoughts about this episode? I just it's a great fucking episode and it holds up still I'm gonna give it I'm giving it a 10 smash kits is that what we call them (laughs) (laughs) kit bashings kit smashings I just I am blown away knowing that they waited the three months to film this because it is so immediate and these two episodes work so well and I'm glad I took some time in between watching the two of them sort of old school days where I had time to percolate on that first episode and I was truly excited to sit down and watch this one and it did not disappoint it's just a great episode that sets up some really interesting stuff for the future and really fine acting all around Jimmy G what did you think best of both worlds part one I think it was one of my very few tens out of tens and in this one I'm gonna have to give it eight Borkinis. It didn't hit home as much as part one which I think is natural the culmination of the episode it's rarely going to be as big as the buildup, the terrifying nature of seeing the Borg and beating them. It, beating them wasn't as satisfying as how terrifying they were in the first one. And I think that it was a brilliant episode. The last scene is absolutely amazing because when I saw that, I thought, does he miss being a Borg? Is that why he's is he longing? Is there a part of him that's like, I miss a little bit of that, like Stockholm Syndrome or something like And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing because maybe there's some part of him that's compromised and this is brilliant. So I loved all that. It was just that the last episode ended with the potential of so much change coming. And at the end of this episode, the biggest change is that 39 ships were destroyed and 11,000 people lost. But Riker's still where he is. Shelby goes away. Captain McCarr goes right back to where he was. So it's like we moved an inch, even though it seemed like 100 miles of things happened. It bumps it back from a 10 for me, even though it's a fantastic episode, but not enough change for it to stay in that number 10 category for me. All right. All right. Well said. Eric, what about you? Ditto. (laughs) (laughs) no i give it eight activated borg cutting beams and uh, i really hope they ask him what that weapon is called and he thinks back through his locutus files he says yes that's called the borg cutting beam because there's (laughs) just absolutely no better name for a weapon than that fantastic episode you've all said why yeah eight activated borg cutting beams excellent (laughs) all right aaron what did you think of this episode upon i mean yeah, I think it's a I think it's a necessary watch. There's a lot of people, especially with all the new shows on right now, that people feel very intimidated to get into Star Trek. They feel like they have to watch the last 800 episodes of Star Trek to feel like they can belong, which is not true. All the shows stand alone on their own, but I do think that there's so many touch points from this episode. Both part one and two, the ideas of the Borg, Picard, Wolf 359, as you mentioned before, we see the ramifications of this episode percolate throughout the entire, especially this era of Trek. And so I think regardless of the rating, which I think is probably 
an eight, eight gravitons. <laughs> it, I would agree with that, but it's necessary. There may be more that are nines and tens, but if you really want to get to know Trek canon, this is a must watch. Absolutely. Agreed. Absolutely agree. Yeah. I'm going to go with 9.5 deflector dish revelations of what that does because <laughs> it, all the things that has been said, it's wonderfully acted. It's wonderfully scripted. It's visually striking to me. I can't really separate this episode too much from the previous episode. It does feel like that one sets up and then this spikes it down in a very satisfying way for me with the way that Riker enacts his plan and how he comports himself. The Guinan scene, I think, is the best character kind of work in this. The rest of it is mostly action and how it all happens. That Guinan scene is so great that it's enough character work for me to realize, okay, Riker has dealt with some of his doubts from the first episode and now he's just a changed kind of growth moment for him here and that, that worked for me. Super great. Awesome to have you, Aaron, here as part of this panel. How can we, our audience find out more about you and your work yeah. here in Star Trek? I know you got a lot of other wonderful things going on. Yeah, it's a lot of fun stuff. You can find me most readily on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Mack, D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. It's the same handle for Instagram, TikTok, and Twitch, all those fun things. So yeah, I just can't talk about any current shows, current seasons that are going on, but always happy to share my experience and answer science questions. And yeah, thank you for having me. This was super fun. Thank you so much. We learned about antimatter. We learned about deflector shields and all of those things just made my pants very wet. We'll be back with next episode and get a little bit more of what's happening with Jean-Luc Picard and his kitty cat. I think there's a cat, right? Isn't there a cat in that? <laughs> we'll have to find out. Yay! Yay! Thank you so much for riding along with us on this episode of Reengage. Next week, we continue our mission with the next episode of the fourth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Reengage on Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates when episodes are published and some other stuff. You can also follow our various cultural bridge crew on social media. Kate Yeager is at Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by Greg Tito and Jimmy G and sometimes Kate Yeager. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo 97 on Twitter. The music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now for the traveler to reengage. <laughs>